Well, hello. I'm Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States, and I've just started a ketogenic diet that's a high-fat, low-carbohydrate to take care of my metabolism. I do have metabolic syndrome, and and my doctor approves. Yeah. Hi, I'm Richard. I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet now since April 2014. When I started, I was very sick with uh, complications from type 2 diabetes. Uh, within six months of starting that diet, all of my biomarkers of disease have disappeared. And I also have type 2 diabetes. I was diagnosed in June 2015. And we are going to share the progress of my journey into ketosis and keto adaptation and Richard's experience thriving for years on ketosis. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, I should mention we're not doctors and we don't want to give any anyone any medical advice, but we're keen to share our own experiences. Uh, we're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail. Uh, we've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms <laughs> and the science behind them. <laughs> so uh, we hope to share some of that research. Um, where possible, we intend to put some links in the show notes to cite the research supporting any claims that we make. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We're also going to share some of the great food that we can eat on this diet. In every episode, both of us will share a recipe for an essential keto meal that we eat regularly. So... Let's start episode one of Two Keto Dudes. And we're going to start with my progress, and we're going to call this episode The Flu Show. Awesome. So let's start with what a ketogenic diet is. Okay. The essence of a diet uh, is getting you enough energy to be able to do all the things that you want to do during the day, mm -hmm. as well as making sure that you have all of your essential nutrition. But the bottom line for a diet is making sure you have energy. Now, there's three different places you can really get energy from. In fact, there's four or five, but let's focus on the main three. The three macronutrients are carbohydrates, so starches and sugars. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got proteins, uh, and which is basically what we maintain our body with, mm -hmm. and uh, fat, which is how we store energy for a rainy day. And it's the most dense form of energy that we can have. So if you have a gram of carbohydrate, a gram of protein, and a gram of fat, you're going to be getting the most energy when you eat the fat. So there's an order in which your body likes to deal with these things, fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. What What is the order? Carbohydrates is basically the primary fuel for our body. Mm. And carbohydrates are basically sugar or starch. Mm -hmm. And all life on Earth pretty much uses um, glucose for for energy. If you eat all three, the carbohydrates will be processed first? That's right. The carbohydrates get processed first so the fats get stored. Okay. And if you don't have enough carbohydrates, but you have a lot of protein, your liver will manufacture carbohydrates out of the excess protein. Hmm. And if you don't have a lot of protein in your diet and you don't have carbohydrates, your body will scavenge some of your muscles to create glucose. So the body really want, it wants glucose. It wants glucose to, um, to, to drive your body. So let's say that you eat an equal amount of carbs, protein, and fat. What happens in that case? Because this is really important. It's, it's keto diet is not so much what you eat, but what you don't eat, right? So let's find out what happens when I eat an equal portion of carbohydrate, fat, and protein. 
Okay, so your body uses the, the glucose for energy. It uses the protein to, to maintain muscles, and excess protein gets converted into glucose, and any glucose you have excess gets converted into fat and added to the fat that you just ate and stored. And the fat is created by your liver, right? That's right. Basically, you have in your body, uh, in your blood, running around in your five liters of blood, you have about five grams of uh, glucose. Okay. So it's about a teaspoon of glucose in your whole uh, body. Uh, that you that, that's your active um, usage, and uh, you store everything else. And you can store about a day's worth of glucose um, in your liver and in your muscles. Okay. And beyond that, all of the rest of it gets turned into fat. So your liver turns all of the rest excess glucose into fat. Let's say that you ate instead of equal portions carbs, fat, protein. Let's say you just took out the carbs and ate the fat and protein. What happens then? All of your cells that are able to metabolize fat will metabolize fat. Yeah. And your liver will make glucose out of the protein and out of the parts of the fat that aren't used for burning energy. And it will provide enough glucose for all of the other cells in the body that have to have glucose. That's mm. your brain. Your brain has to have some glucose and your red blood cells and a few other cells. They're really, they're not flexible. They have to, they can only work on glucose. But most of your body can work on fat or it can work on glucose. And what we're doing is we're switching the energy of the body from being a predominantly a glucose burning body to a predominantly a fat burning body. Right. And I like to make the analogy of, you know, a car that is running on gasoline, making a switch to one that runs on diesel. And except that our bodies are these amazing machines that, Instead of having to bring your car to a mechanic and say, I want to run on diesel now, and they take out the engine and convert it or whatever, your body just after a while says, oh, we have diesel fuel now. We don't have gasoline. I will change how I process that fuel because that's what I have. Yes, that's right. So your body basically adapts on the fly to what energy you're giving it. So we're walking around this word called ketosis, which I talked about in the introduction. And uh, this is some a, a word that at least in the 80s or in the 70s when Dr. Atkins brought the low-carb diet to the mainstream, a lot of doctors were horrified by that word because they were only used to hearing that in a context of a type 1 diabetic. And a type 1 diabetic, when they have too many ketones, have this toxic uh, state called ketoacidosis. So if there are ketones in the urine of a, a type 1 diabetic, that's a huge, huge warning flag. And so yes. is this probably where the fear of the high-fat, low-carb diet really hits home and resonates for a lot of people? That's definitely true. For doctors, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis is a very dangerous uh, situation for somebody who's type 1 diabetic to be in. Mm -hmm. And what actually happens for them is that they're unable to use their glucose at all. They're mm -hmm. unable to produce any insulin. That's why they can't use the glucose. So right. their body tries to switch to burning fat. And you just said the magic word insulin. We talk about people like us, big guys, having metabolic syndrome, which includes insulin resistance. And this is one of the things we really want to say. This diet is a corrective diet for people like us who have extra pounds, you know, who have insulin resistance, who have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes. Like this is, this is the corrective diet. And so we don't want to, you know, if you're a five foot four inch, uh, 110 pound woman who wants to take off three pounds, this is not the diet you should be looking at. You you already have a very efficient metabolism for burning 
carbohydrates and, and fats and stuff. And so, so let's talk about insulin resistance because this is sort of the cornerstone of how the ketogenic diet works. Uh, and I'll just start by saying insulin is what gets secreted by your pancreas. It's actually the mechanism of how the body uses glucose. Um, and uh, somebody who's type 1 diabetic has, uh, it cannot make any insulin at all. Right. The problem with the type 2 diabetic is we make too much of the stuff. And it fails to be effective, doesn't it? To, because typically when you have a sugar spike, your insulin level goes up to take care of it. And in a healthy person, the, the glucose level in your blood comes down. Uh, in the end, and then the insulin level comes down because it's done its job. But when we're insulin resistant... It, you need to produce more and more and more of it to get effect, which is the law of diminishing returns. That effect turns into no effect, essentially. And now your blood sugar is always really high. And that's what's leading you to type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Insulin is normally released in a pulsatile manner, short, sharp pulses. And we produce a lot of it. Too much. Type Two diabetics produce more insulin than most people, and we right. don't use it very efficiently. And yeah. so what ends up happening is we make a lot of it. And the other problem for type 2 diabetics is three hours after we eat a meal full of carbohydrates, we've produced so much insulin that it starts driving our blood glucose low uh, to below where the body feels comfortable having it, and then we start getting hypoglycemic events where you basically need to go out to the to get a candy bar stat because uh, you're so hungry. Right. So it's so it's a it, it's a extreme on both sides. High blood sugar. It's a roller coaster. Whereas if we were normal, the insulin would secrete, the glucose would immediately come down, and the, not immediately, but you know over half an hour or so. And then uh, the insulin would drop back to a normal level. That's right. And so doctors know that insulin, high insulin levels, is really the pro the reason why we get fat, isn't it? Yeah. When there's insulin in the blood, your fat cells hold on to all the fat and they go grabbing any glucose in the blood and turning it into fat and storing it inside themselves. Mm. In a high insulin environment, you hold on to fat, you store all of your fat and you try to you consume all of the all of the glucose because mm. the body really emits a lot of insulin when this when the glucose is too high and and both insulin and glucose are, are bad to have in large amounts for a long time mm. uh, insulin for example is a precursor to atherogenic plaques and mm -hmm. one of the reasons why uh, type 2 diabetics have four times the risk of having heart attacks of normal populations because of that because we have high insulin for so long that it uh, that it ends up doing vascular damage. In fact, most of the problems involving diabetes are all vascular. They're right. all things like uh, not being able to feel your fingers or, or losing right. feet and, and what have you and yeah. kidneys not working and, and losing your eyesight. This is all because of uh, vascular problems caused by diabetes. So getting back to this fear of fat, uh, it all comes from one study that was done uh, very early on in the 20th century. And this study essentially made a correlation, not a causal, you know, definition, but a correlation between high fat in the diet and uh, heart disease. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, it was basically was called five countries and then it was seven countries. And it looked at countries that ate lo a, a lot less fat, like Japan. And then it looked at countries in the West, like the United States and Western Europe and things and Australia that did consume a lot of fat in their diet. And the conclusion was that if you eat fat, you will be sick. They did not account for, let's say, the Inuit Eskimo people who live completely on fat and protein and have no obesity and no heart disease, essentially, and the Maasai. 
the African warriors who simply eat meat and blood and no vegetables and, you know, and they're like the tallest, thinnest. So now people are saying, oh, well, that's genetics. So studies have been done that separates out uh, by basically taking a Maasai warrior and moving them to Europe or Australia or the United States. I don't remember what it was. But after living in the West, the Maasai would slowly put on weight and become more sick. And so this study, and it was Keys, right? That's Ansel Keys, right. Ansel Keys. And this is the cornerstone of guidelines of uh, the food pyramid, which is mostly grains and all that stuff. And to this day, they're are still touting this diet, and yet we're getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And the scientists in the last decade have noticed this and said, well, wait a minute, something must be terribly wrong with this diet that we, we're not, we're missing. Yeah, we're getting more obese, we're getting more heart disease, we're getting more diabetes, right. um, we're getting all of these metabolic problems happening. Mm. And at the same time, if you look at the stats over the past 40 years, we're eating more carbohydrates because that's what we've been told. Right. You've got to eat a lot of whole grain carbohydrates. Yeah, and less fat. We're eating less saturated fat. We're eating less uh, milk fat, butter. Uh, we're eating less red meat. We're eating more chicken, lean chicken. as has gone right up. So here's here's what the science proves, and we will talk about that in another show. But here's what it proves, is that, yes, if you eat a lot of fat with carbohydrates, with a lot of carbohydrates, you will have problems. You will be sick. But if you eat just carbohydrates and very little fat, you will also be sick. All right, so we're talking about eliminating the carbohydrates. And, of course, you need calories to survive, so they, it comes in the ketogenic diet mostly from fat and some from protein. So that's basically what we're talking about. It turns out, and science proves this, that eating fat does not make you fat. In fact, it's the opposite. As long as you're eliminating carbohydrates. That's that's right. It, it kind of makes sense. And we we want to leap to an intuitive conclusion that, oh, sure, if I eat fat, I get fat. Mm. That. That really makes sense. Yeah. But if you think about it, if you eat your greens, you don't turn green. But if I eat carrots, I, I might turn a little orange. You might turn a little <laughs> orange, yeah. The reality is if you eat carbohydrates, you become very good at storing fat. Yeah. If you eat fat and make predominantly fat, your body adapts and becomes very efficient at burning fat. We give our body mainly fat. That's where it gets all its energy from. It becomes very efficient at burning fat and at that point, the body doesn't really care if it's fat that's on your plate or it's fat that's on your love handles that you mm. put that you put on there a decade ago. Right. Our bodies actually are really good at burning fat. That's why they store it for, for that primary that's fuel right. source. So now, in order to get to that state, there's two stages, isn't there? The first stage is ketosis. And this is where your body, instead of using uh, burning glucose, will burn the fat either that you eat or, you know, after it's repleted that, it will burn the fat around your midsection. And the byproduct of that is ketones. And ketones are these little things that uh, I I think the mitochondria uh, make. What's the story with that? It's part of the uh, the citric acid cycle that in the mitochondria, basically when you burn fat for energy, you're burning fatty acids for energy, mm-hmm. one of the intermediaries that you create 
are ketones. And normally most of your cells will burn the whole thing down and basically you end up with water and carbon dioxide. It's basically clean burning. Yeah. But here's the thing. Your brain needs some glucose. Mm. And so if you don't eat any glucose, what happens is your liver says, right, we're not eating any glucose. We need to make some for the brain. We're going to draw down all of our storage and now we've got no storage left. So uh, once our glycogen stores are all empty, mm-hmm. the liver says to itself, right, we need to full court press, we need to make uh, energy for the brain. Mm. So I'm going to convert, the liver says, I'm going to convert all the protein I can get hold of, bits and pieces of amino acids and mm. bits and pieces of the of the triglycerides that it's broken down for, for fat burning and turn them into glucose. And it makes just enough glucose uh, to keep things going. Mm. And that's actually the trick of the, the ketogenic diet is the liver is actually doing all of the work of keeping your brain alive. Yeah. But part of the process of making glucose is that the liver doesn't efficiently burn fat because one of the things that it needs to make that glucose is one of these intermediaries in the fat. One of the, one of the chemicals that is part of the process of burning fat, the glucose-making part of the liver says, right, I'll grab that because I need to make some, some glucose. And because that chemical has been taken away from the mitochondria, uh, it now spills ketones because it can't burn them any further. It's basically, it's stopping the process of burning fat. And your brain can live on ketones, can it? Just like it can live on glucose. In fact, it's probably a more primitive fuel for the brain. It may be the first source of fuel or the, you know, the original source of fuel that the brain preferred to use. And so it's already... It's al- it already knows how to deal with it. Yeah, the ketones actually, they're pretty remarkable things because they do some things like, first of all, they can supplement the energy for the brain mm. and they regulate a lot of the brain uh, messenger chemicals. And so, for example, um, children who uh, have uh, refractory a- epilepsy um, are put on ketogenic diets which basically raise these ketones mm. and those ketones being available to the brain helps calm down the excitation that is involved with the epileptic process. So, right. um, also the heart, um, it, it turns out that the heart really loves ketones and the heart is 22% more efficient when, uh, fueled by ketones than it is when it's fueled by glucose. That's why you get into the state where you have, where, where ketogenic diet people have more energy. But let's talk about now the second stage. And this is what a lot of people on low-carb diets fail to get to, is stage two, and this is called keto adaptation. That's right. So this is where your brain finally says, oh, I'm, I'm getting glucose and dribs and drabs. I've been getting that for a while now, and I'm getting mostly ketones. I'm not thinking that we're starving anymore. I will just adapt. You know, I'm going to change over to diesel, right? I'm going to just start burning ketones, and everything's going to be cool. So it takes... It takes a while to get there and you really do have to eat a lot of fat, you know, like a, a zero carb diet for a couple of weeks to get to that state. And it can take as long as six weeks. But typically, if you give yourself a month, you're you're probably there as long as you haven't eaten, you know, as long as you haven't had a cheat day. And so the reason most people don't get to this state is because of the thing that we're calling this show the flu show, this keto flu. You, you basically, your body is changing. Your hormones are changing. Your The way that your liver processes energy is changing. Your heart is changing. Your brain is changing. And so change is good, but, you know, things happen. Diarrhea, constipation, headaches, dizziness, foggy brain, all of these things, uh, you might find yourself taking naps in the afternoon. 
um, really wonderful naps too, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but the, you know, and so people think, oh, I'm eating all this fat and I'm feeling sluggish. You know, it sort of reinforces that thinking that we've had for years that eating fat makes you fat and, oh, it's going, it's going to turn my blood to putty and it's going right to my, you know, I can feel it in my neck and all this stuff, right? Which is just not true. It, it, it's a, it's a minor discomforting stage that you're in. When you break through, wonderful things are in store for you. So yeah. let's talk about what happens when you're keto adapted and maybe some of the signs that you are and then what is okay so what you've got to do is you've got to push through that flu stage mm. and then your body is fully adapted um, and in that uh, during that time a, a couple of things happen you you're because you're not eating a lot of glucose you're not eating much at all you're not producing a lot of insulin and one of the things that your kidneys normally do when you when you have insulin in your blood your kidneys reabsorb minerals back into the blood mm. so what happens is when you go through times of not having much insulin in the, in the body, you you spill a lot of minerals. So you spill calcium and potassium, magnesium, sodium and magnesium, and so uh, you can get things like cramps. You get headaches. Um, the other thing that is interesting is that in the first and one of the reasons people really like the keto diet but don't stick with it for more than a week, mm. is in the first week you draw down all of your glucose stores. Now, yeah, they call it water weight. And the reason is glycogen, which is your storage in in your cells, contains like it's water three to one, right? Hmm, is there's a lot right. of water. And so when you deplete that, you just drop, you know, a few kilos, 10 pounds, 20 pounds within the first couple of weeks. And people are like, hey, this is really good. I mean, but that happens when you restrict your calories too. Yeah, that's right. But the thing is that people see that they've lose about five kilos, and all of a sudden that you know they take a victory lap and go have a nice carby meal. Yeah, and they put themselves right back into the into the problem again. Right. So you need to push through. Yes. You need to be aware that you're going to have these cramps and headaches, and you need to increase your salt intake. Yeah, and not only increase your salt intake, but take a, a, a some potassium, magnesium, calcium, the minerals that those mm. will help. And one of the things they prescribe is bone broth or Simply put, you know, soup made with bones. That's right. I mean, in fact, I'm making some right now with chicken wings. I get an old slow cooker and and put in a kilo of chicken wings mm. um, and a little bit of water, and I run it for 36 hours. And in the end, what happens is, um, put a little bit of a tablespoon of vinegar. It helps to leach the minerals out of the bones, and then strain it and basically drink that as like a chicken soup, which mm -hmm. is and it's awesome because it's all of the collagen in the skin and in the in the actual gristle and bits of the wingtips all turns into gelatin. Mm. If you take some of this bone broth, uh, put it in a glass and put the glass in the fridge, you come back a, an hour later, you turn it upside down, and it's just solid. It's just turned to jello. Yep. So it turned to chicken jello. So That's right. Yeah. The flavor of that is very, very fulfilling. So yeah. you'll get uh, moments where you all of a sudden you have a lot of energy. Yes. You were saying this to me the other day. Oh, yeah. I was, I don't know what I was doing. I was just sitting at my desk. Uh, you know, because that's what I do and I'm working. And all of a sudden I just get this urge to run. I feel like, <laughs> and it's not like a stress run, like a fight or flight kind of thing. It's like, I, I want to get up and move. I want to go for a walk. I want to go run. But then you'll find that if you're not fully keto adapted and that happens, you'll run for maybe 10 minutes and you'll be exhausted, but you yeah. still, still can do it. You know, it's, it's just amazing. And then of course, once you are keto adapted, the energy lasts for a long time. And and then essentially what you're doing 
is burning your fat that is stored in your body as fuel. You can go long periods of time without eating. And yeah. uh, there's there's uh, evidence of people that have run marathons on fasting, not even yeah. eating, not you know maybe drinking bone broth or something or water and not being hungry. Can you imagine not being hungry? This is I, one of the things. This is one of the yeah. things that uh, drives people away from the low carb diet because it's like an itch, isn't it? It's you know mm. when you have poison ivy or something, you love you love to scratch it. Oh, that feels so good. All right, well let's take the poison ivy away, and they're kind of like, no, but it feels good when I scratch it, right? Okay, <laughs> it's, but that's true. but it's poison. Take it away, and then you won't you'll you'll be calm. So uh, when you're keto adapted, these are the things that you can look forward to. A loss of appetite. You can eat when you want because you're actually hungry, not because you are emotional or anything like that. No mood swings. Your 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 mood will become stable. An incredible store of energy when you need it. If you want to go out for a run, you can go out for a run. You're not going to be starving when you get back. Here's another thing about the ketogenic diet that we haven't talked about. Is there's and you probably know this because you've done all the science. There's a receptor or or a trigger chemical that tells your brain, I think it's leptin, that tells your brain when you're full or when you're hungry. And when you're eating carbs... Insulin blocks it. So insulin blocks it. So when your insulin is high, your guts are telling your brain, I'm not full, keep shoveling stuff in. And then the brain never gets a signal. The brain's like, hey, what's going on down there? Oh, looks like you need more food because you haven't said stop. So I'm going to want more food. And this is the carb cycle, right? And people find themselves on this cycle over and over again, and they think they're starving. And, you know, and it feels so good to satiate it with a pizza or a grinder. You know, it's a submarine sandwich. Do we call them grinders up here in the Northeast? Sure. But then when your insulin levels are low, that receptor actually works. You can sit down and have a cheeseburger with oopsie bread, which is my recipe for today. Or you can have, you know, some, some chicken wings that you can order anywhere at any restaurant, you know, some, some buffalo wings or something. And after you eat half of what you normally eat, you're like, oh, I'm full. And by full, yeah. I mean, like, if I eat any more, I'll be nauseated. Yeah. And it, it actually happens before you get physical capacity in your stomach. Right. I, I, I went to my doctor before all this happened, before I went keto. And I was, I was very sick. I was diabetic and, and, and I was eating, obviously eating too much. Mm. And, uh, although I was eating the food pyramid, I was eating several pyramids. <laughs> and, um, so, so pyramid uh, for breakfast, the, the pyramid for lunch, pyramid for breakfast, pyramid exactly. For so, <laughs> yeah. So, so, and I, I went to my doctor and I said, this, I've got to have, there's got to be something wrong with me. I must have a tumor in my belly that is, yeah. is, is driving something because, I, I eat so much to the capacity of my stomach and I'm still hungry. I still have the urge to eat. And the mm. only thing that's stopping me is I am physically filled to the scuppers. Yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and it, it, my doctor at the time didn't really have a solution for me. You were lucky that your doctor approved your, your ketogenic diet. Yeah. Drug. She's great. My doctor was going to put me on, he was going to take me up to the next level of diabetic medication, which was, uh, had a risk of cancer or something, right? Yeah, pancreatic duct cancer. What was the medicine? Uh, it was Januvia. Okay. I had a look into it and there was a UCLA cadaver study that found an abnormal number of pancreatic duct 
tumors okay. uh, on people who took this drug. And so I, I basically panicked. I went through the Kubler-Ross stages of, uh, you know, denial and anger <laughs> yes. and all this kind of thing. And I, I got bargaining. to bargaining and I, uh, yeah, and I said to the doctor, I said, look, give me three months, take my metabolic biomarkers today and give me three months and we'll take my biomarkers again. And if I can't fix them, I'll take whatever drug that you want me to. Yeah. And at, at the time, my HbA1c was 7.5, and three months later I came back, it was 5.5, and then three months later he didn't believe it. He said mm. there's something wrong, that you cannot get, you cannot drop from a diabetic level to a, a, a normal. In fact, it wasn't even high normal. It was middle normal uh, level. Um, anything under 6.5 he would have been happy with. Mm -hmm. um, I was at 5.5 and then uh, three months later he had me come back and do another HbA1c and I was 5.2 and then I, uh, I did another one three months after that I was 5.2 and he, he said to me, I don't know how you've done it but you've just cured diabetes. So, you know, it's uh, as far as he was concerned, it's only progressive uh, illness. So. so this is great um, because we're doing this three weeks after I've started the keto diet and let me tell you where I started where I am today. And then, you know, I'm also getting my uh, my stats checked, my blood work done on April 8th. So we'll come back and we'll find out how I did. In June of 2015, I was diagnosed with uh, type 2 diabetes. I took my vitals on September 3rd, 2015, and here's what they were. My A1C, which is your sort of standing three-month average level of blood sugar, it's a very good steady number, 7.4. So I was just above you, okay? Mm. HDL, 42. That's uh, good cholesterol. LDL, bad cholesterol, 90. Triglycerides were 335, dude. Wow. That's really high. So yeah. I'm, I'm like in immediate danger of a heart attack, right, or a stroke. Triglycerides are, are basically uh, fats that your liver is made out of excess glucose. So right. it's basically worked out you've got enough glucose for your immediate requirements. I'm going to turn everything else into fats. Right. So, so everything I'm eating is going right to my butt. That triglycerides is telling you you're packing it on. Yeah. So and and my weight was 366 pounds. Today my weight is 343 pounds. That's awesome. So 23 pounds. That's in three weeks. In three weeks. Yeah. Now we can we can discount some of that for water weight, but there's yeah, not maybe ten pounds for water weight. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then in the first week, I dropped ten pounds, and then it slowly came off after that. So there you go. We're gonna find and oh, my blood pressure, uh, one forty over seventy two. Uh, so we're gonna find out as we go on, you know how how we're doing on this, and and I am eating the standard ketogenic diet, which is. Very trace amounts of carbohydrates. I'm only getting it from green leafy vegetables, um, occasional nuts, but very rarely. Uh, and that's it. And, and just enough protein to keep me uh, from losing protein in my muscle mass, which there's a calculation you can do. We'll put a link to it. And then the rest from fat. And I think we might have we might have a whole show on protein at one point. I think, I think. that's a great idea, yeah. So in the morning, what I do is a thing you might have heard of called Bulletproof Coffee. Uh, turns out coconut oil is very good for you, and uh, you basically take a big spoon of it, maybe two or three tablespoons, put it in a blender, and put maybe three cups of coffee in the in the blender. I put a little cinnamon in mine and just blend it on high, and it looks like a nice creamy 
like you stirred half and half into it. That's what it looks like. So, so you you properly emulsify it. Yes, uh, I've seen a lot of people just stir it with a spoon, and that you could do that, but it, you end up with a fatty layer on top. That's right. Fat obviously floats, but if you if basically if you get the fat droplets small enough, which they will if in in the hot coffee, mm. and you whisk it, you end up with a, an emulsion. It becomes thick or almost it's, it's it's exactly the same process as mayonnaise. Yeah, and it becomes a thick. It's like a thick. It's like a coffee thick shake. Like a milkshake. It's, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so that's that's my breakfast every morning. And I tell you, even if I wake up hungry after that first cup of Bulletproof coffee, I'm, I'm absolutely fine. Not hungry, not interested in eating at all. How many hours does that last you? Uh, I can go till, if I, if I take that at 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm good till 1 or 2 p.m. In fact, I could probably go to 4 p.m. if I wanted to, but I don't. I, I, I start eating at 2 and I stop eating at 8. And there's good reasons for that. We'll do a show on intermittent fasting or IF and the benefits that that uh, gives you and helps you get into keto adaptation quicker. Yeah. But that's what I'm doing right now. And um, while, you know, the weight loss slows down, the insulin level goes down faster. So it's been a wild ride for me. That's what I do. And then I eat... uh, Then I eat maybe a sandwich on Oopsie Bread, uh, which is my recipe, as I said before. For lunch, or I'll go get some smoked wings from Chili's. Oh, those are good. Oh, nice. With no sauce, (laughs) of course. Or some, you know, some meat and fat. Uh, If there's not enough fat in the meat, I'll put some butter on it. Just good enough. And then, you know, dinner is uh, more of the same. But I don't have to eat a whole lot to get get full. And that's that's it. You know, people are like, well, how many grams and how much of this and stuff? And the, the answer is... Eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, and have the right ratios. And that's it. Let your body do what it was meant to do. You're so used to measuring stuff and using your brain because you're used to getting no signals from your body. Your body's essentially not talking, has been talking to you for the last 40 years or whatever. Once you eliminate those carbs, get the insulin level down, your body will start telling you when to eat and when to stop. So let's get to the recipes. My recipe, as I have said before, has the word bread in the title. How can this be? I thought bread was (laughs) off limits. Well, this is called oopsie bread. And uh, I think it was named because it was discovered by accident. And you could just Google Bing oopsie bread, and I'm sure you'll find a recipe to it. But it's a very simple recipe, and we will link you to the original recipe. Okay? So here it is. You need three eggs, and you need three ounces of cream cheese. And you need a mixer, like an automatic mixer. A hand blender may not work for you. So you separate the whites and put them in a bowl with a pinch of cream of tartar, which is a white powder that you can get at any grocery store. And by a pinch, I mean one one pinch. That's it. Just a little bit. And now you're going to beat the egg whites until they are really, 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 really stiff. And I mean like seven minutes. So, you know. Wow. Yeah, seven minutes. You beat the bejesus out of them. And uh, after you've done that, you probably want to scrape them out of the uh, of the mixer and put them in a bowl, wash out your mixer, and put in the egg yolks and three ounces of cream cheese. Cream cheese comes in eight-ounce packages, so a little less than a half, and you've got uh, – or three-quarters of a half, actually. And you've got it. You can also use a scale, which is what I do. I put the uh, – Egg yolks in there, the cream cheese in there, and beat the bejesus out of that, too, until there are no more lumps. You know, scrape down the bowl, whatever. 
By the way, your oven should be on 300 degrees Fahrenheit. So 300 Fahrenheit, that'd be about 150 Celsius. Great. So then you pour the egg yolk and cream cheese mixture over the top of the egg whites and fold them in gently without breaking them. That's really hard to do. Folding egg whites is an art. Take a rubber spatula, put it right down the middle, turn it a little bit, fold over from the bottom onto the top, you know, turn it, do it again. And when you do this enough times, you're incorporating. You're basically, what you want to do is incorporate these two things together without breaking the foam, because the foam is what makes the bread. All right? So then you take a, a greased cookie sheet. You can use a flavored olive oil or butter or whatever you want to use. Put it on a cookie sheet and make six individual uh, dollops of this stuff. Flatten it out a little bit. You can square it off if you like. Make them round, whatever. Put them in your oven for 20 to 30 minutes, and you got to watch it. When they get golden brown on top, they're done. Take them out, put them on a cooling rack, and after they've cooled, you can put them in the fridge, and they make wonderful sandwiches. They hold together like bread does. They're foam like bread is. They taste kind of like a pancake, but, you know, because they have the egg flavor and the cream cheese flavor. That's actually a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. If they taste like pancakes, that's a good thing. I uh, I make uh, tuna fish, you know, with mayo in the food oh, processor, yeah. throw in a clove of garlic, and uh, add a little extra salt if you want, because you need salt, remember? Mm -hmm. Put that on some oopsie bread with some smoked gouda and some bacon and lettuce and tomato and mayo, and that's uh, lunch. That's one heck of a restrictive diet, isn't I, it? It's terrible. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't that sound wonderful? <laughs> Yeah, terrible. So that's oopsie bread. That's what I got, Richard. What's yours? That's awesome. So, so I've got one uh, that I call an om nomlet. Nom and nom nom. This om nom nom nomlet. <laughs> and basically, what this uh, and for the first six months when I went keto, I I I actually like having the same thing every day. Uh, and so I would have this omelet. This when I first wake up in the morning, I don't like to make any decisions. I I'm not in a decision making mode, and so. I'm on autopilot, and it was really convenient for me to have this one thing that I would have every day for for breakfast. Now, most people aren't going to be like that, but uh, for me, uh, it was having this omelette every day. And it was yeah. it's basically a royal omelette uh, with uh, ham, cheese, and and avocado. And uh, it's very easy to make if you have one of those little magic bullet instant blenders. It's, it's a cinch, uh, but you can just use a bowl and a whisk and mm – -hmm. It's another egg recipe. So basically uh, the basis of an omelette is uh, an egg and a bit of cream. And mm. so the way that I, I make mine, I like to have one whole egg and one egg white and I reserve the yolk and when I get six after I've had a, a week worth of uh, om nom omelettes, <laughs> I will – I will have six or seven yolks, and I use those to make ice cream. So, Ooh, we'll do a whole um, show on and, ice cream. We'll do, we, I think we, <laughs> I think we definitely should. Um, I do bacon maple smoky ice cream. Oh it's man, one of my ice cream. So <laughs> that 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 I think that could be a show all by itself. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so 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 we have um, so I have a, a, an egg and an egg white, a whole egg and an egg white, and uh, about a tablespoon of heavy cream. And uh, this is something we get in, in Australia. We call it pure cream, and I think you call it uh, you call it heavy cream. In, yeah, in heavy America. cream in America. There's also whipping yeah. cream. There's a little bit of difference, but not any difference in carbs. So yeah, just go some, for heading, some, heavy cream. 
Yeah, sometimes whipping cream has uh, has uh, some starches to help it gel. So you just it, sometimes it's useful just to check the nutritional panels and yeah. whichever cream has the lowest carbohydrate content, that's the one you want. So I throw that in a in a magic blender, uh, in a bullet, and put in a little bit of salt and whisk it up, and I get. A hot pan. Now, a lot of people use omelette pans, which are really thin. They've got a really thin edge and they're light, so you can flip the omelette very easily. Uh, but I really like cooking with a cast iron, so I've got myself a, an Osfont cast iron. I love um, cast iron. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I get that thing rolling. I get it building up a lot of residual heat. And I have a, I have a ceramic uh, container on the side of my uh, stove and every time I cook bacon, all the grease that's left over, I pour into that ceramic container. I call that my that my strategic grease reserve. I love it. So I every time I go to start cooking, I don't start cooking with a dry fry pan. So I'll go to the strategic grease reserve and I'll get a teaspoon of old bacon fat and I'll start off with that. And so uh, so I'll get the pan nice and uh, hot and the and the little bit of grease in there, sort of lubricating it nicely. And then I'll pour the eggs in and uh, I'm. Might uh, you know? I, sometimes I can chop a bit of parsley or some chives or something just to to make it look a little bit fancy. But um, most times I just put just straight egg and cream. That's great. And you know, omelets omelets are a palette on which you can put absolutely. any sort of thing, like a pizza. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the, now the one that I predominantly make uh, is ham, cheese, and avocado. And the reason I do that is because I've got an avocado tree, so I have plentiful access to avocados, and they're such a wonderful fruit. It's one of the few fruit that actually have high content of fat right. and a fairly low content of carbohydrates. So, yeah, and, and um, I've heard of people just taking an avocado, making slices in it you know, with a knife, adding a little salt, a little lime, Maybe a little garlic powder or something, and it's sort of like guacamole without having to mush it up, and then just eat it with a spoon. Yeah. In fact, the other day we just took those slices of avocado and fried them in bacon fat, bacon grease, oh. and uh, and and it just the texture of those is crispy. It's almost like a almost like a potato chip. Really, it's like guacamole on the inside. It's just so good. Oh, well, I got to try so, that. You definitely have to try that. So, so anyway, um, so I, so while I'm cooking one side of my omelette, I'll be chopping up, uh, say 10 grams of smoked leg ham and I'll get 15 grams of, uh, grated cheddar or I'll grate some, uh, and about 20 grams of avocado. And that I find is a nice, uh, a nice ratio. And, uh, so basically, uh, the top, once the top of the omelette starts to set, you can see the egg has set. It means that when you flip it, you're not going to have any liquid there. So, uh, so I, I use a spatula to flip it over. Basically, you want to get it just when it's set. And that means the base has probably just got to the right consistency. And that means when you flip it, you're not going to get liquid flying everywhere. The bit that you cook first, the one that's closest to the fry pan to start off with is going to be in the inside of your omelette. So you want it, you don't want it, uh, you don't want it really overcooked. You yep. want it to be quite, quite got it. got it and then so so you flip it over and then if your fry pan is a circle you you divide it into thirds and in the middle third you put all of your ingredients and then you turn over each of the other thirds sides over the top of the ingredients and then you just let it sit there for a bit until you you feel the base has been cooked enough for your preferences and then, then I flip it over again just to uh, get it one more cooking and then straight onto the plate Great. and I would I had that every every day for almost 6 months 
Sometimes I didn't always have avocado and ham. Sometimes I had leftovers of uh, something we had the night before. As you say, it's a palate. It's a it's a palate that you can you can uh, make whatever you want on. So you know. Well, Richard, before we sign off, um, just tell us briefly how much weight you've lost and how long it took. Okay, so I was uh, I started out at three hundred pounds. I'm trying to. I'm, I'm obviously I'm Australian. I lived in America for ten years, so I'm totally I'm totally screwed up when it comes to weights and measures. Um, but I'm I was about three hundred pounds. In the six months, I lost uh, about seventy pounds, wow. and I've put on about ten pounds in the uh, over over a year since. In April, it'll be eighteen months since uh, since uh, so it'll be you know two two years on the diet. The first six months, as I say, uh, uh, lost all my weight, and then other people who did it with me, like my partner Julie, she lost weight continuously for for two years, and mm. she but she lost less than me. Right? Uh, she does she doesn't have type two diabetes, so her her particular uh, her response to the diet was entirely different to my response to the diet. Well, that's great. Um- I guess we'll leave it right there for today. Thanks for listening to Two Keto Dudes. You can check us out at twoketodudes.com. And we will uh, post all our show links and notes there. And we'll see you next time. See you next week, Carl. Bye. Bye.